Father in heaven, we do thank you for just the spirit of Christmas, uh, the joy that it brings, the hope that it brings, the peace that it brings, and that we find all those things so gently laying in a manger, and the unexpected nature of that truth, the unexpected reality of that truth, and help us to reflect on it in, in a new and fresh way this morning that prompts our hearts to truly be joyful and grateful for all that you do for us. God, as we turn to your scriptures, we pray that your spirit would inhabit this place, it would inhabit our souls, our minds, God, and that you would move and stir among us that we would see you for who you are. We love you, Father, and we pray all these things in Jesus' precious and holy name. Amen and amen. Thank you. You all may be seated. So uh, I'm curious, have you ever found yourself at a loss for words? It's hard for me to ever encounter those moments. I tend to have too many words, as many of you are all too aware of. Uh, but you know those, what I'm talking about, those moments where you're just kind of left speechless, you're, you're at a loss for words. A lot, of, a lot of things can prompt that reaction or, or that sort of sentiment and feeling. Sometimes we're at a loss for words because of just the sheer shock of a moment, right? It's the surprise party. It's the news that was unexpected from a friend or what you see on TV and you just, you're so taken aback, you're just at a loss for words. Sometimes uh, we're speechless or at a loss for words because of tragedy, right? I mean, there's a situation that's just too overwhelming. It's the loss of a loved one. It's, it's a diagnosis. Uh, there, there are all these tragic situations that can take place that, again, leave us speechless or not really knowing what to say. Uh, sometimes that being lost for words is a reaction to love, right? You just get swept away by beauty or romance and you're speechless. Sometimes it's a gift that's given. That obviously applies to the Christmas season. Again, you open something, you receive something you didn't expect, and you just, you're so blown away by it, you don't know what to say. We, we, there's a lot of different examples, a lot of different situations that create those reactions where we're, we're left speechless. We don't really know what to say. And, and that, I think, really applies to the gospel, especially the Christmas season, right? That when you really stop and you reflect upon everything that we're really talking about, everything that we're celebrating, everything that we're saying, and you, you give consideration to, to a baby laying in a manger, you, you think about angels declaring the news in the sky before shepherds. You think about Mary and Joseph on this harrowing journey to, to go and to, to find a place to, to welcome this child into the world. You think about the wise men traveling so far. There's so many different elements and just wonder and majesty and grandeur to this story that when we really stop and reflect upon it, it should leave us speechless. We should almost be searching for words. The, the unfortunate reality is that oftentimes during the Christmas season, it's this story, the story of Christ, that seems to kind of fade in the background, right? That a lot of times when we get into just the rhythm of Christmas, we, we turn our attention and our hearts and our mind towards all the other stuff, uh, Christmas shopping and presents and activities and end-of-year parties and events and all these different things that we have on our calendar that the story of Jesus oftentimes is just kind of there in the background and we don't always stop and really reflect upon it to the level that we probably should. Uh, and that's really what Advent, I think, is designed to do. That's what we seek to do as a church family is to stop and give consideration 
to the Christ child, to all that has taken place, and to once again kind of respond in such a way that makes us searching for the right words. What should we say in response to all that we see at Advent? It's an important question. What should we say in response to all these things? All right, if we really do take it in and it leaves us speechless for a moment, at some point, though, we should search for those words and think, what, what is the response to all that Christ has done? And, and how would you answer that? That's the question for us to answer this morning. What have you said in response to Christ? What have you said in response to this major scene? What, what, do, you, what do you offer up with your life? How do we respond? What do we say as a response to all these things? And that's really the question that we find with the gospel. It's the question that Paul leads us to at this moment in Romans chapter 8, where we've been really kind of working through throughout the Advent season. I want to go ahead and invite you to turn to Romans 8, and you'll see here in just a moment when we start reading that that's the exact question that Paul presents to his readers. What should we say in response to these things? Now, granted, Romans 8 is not specific to the Advent story. This isn't a a verse that's applied to Luke chapter 2 right after all these things happen, but it is a question that I think can really absolutely be attributed to the fullness of the gospel. What are we supposed to say in response to these things? That's a, that is a worthy question for the Christmas season, and it's a worthy question for Paul to introduce at this moment in Romans chapter 8. And, and as we prepare to read just a few verses this morning, I want to make sure that we're reading it with the appropriate mindset that understands that when Paul says, what are we supposed to say in response to these things? I, I believe he's referencing more than just the last few comments and verses that he's made in chapter 8. Right? That really, the, this, this conclusion that we're about to walk through this week and next for Romans chapter 8 is really drawing upon all that Paul has really begun to unpack since chapter 1. If you go back to 1 verses 16 and 17, if you can think back that far, that was the thesis statement. That was the whole point of the letter. Right? I'm not ashamed of the gospel, for it is the righteousness of God. It is the salvation for all those who believe, a righteousness that is by faith. You, you look at that statement, that thesis statement, and ever since 1, 16 and 17, Paul has been working towards a revelation of that righteousness, right? He's been working to explain why he is unashamed, why he is so confident in all that has been done for him in Christ. And so you work through how the wrath of God has been revealed against godlessness and wickedness to the point that Paul is able to say there's no one righteous, not even one. But now a new righteousness apart from the law to which the law and the prophets testify has been revealed in Christ. That Jesus is the new and better Adam in the same way that sin came into the world through one man. So righteousness comes into the world through one man and that righteousness is by faith just as it was for Abraham. Right? Abraham, it was credited to him as righteousness. And so in the same way it's credited to us is righteousness. And so God, through that faith, justifies us. He makes things right. He makes us dead to sin and alive to Christ. Now, we may still live in the flesh, but he has called us out of the realm of the flesh and into the realm of the spirit, that we can live the spirit-filled, spirit-led life. So what should we say in response to all these things? That's where Paul is. He's not just referencing the last few verses. He's talking about all of it. What is our response? What should we say? Let's take a look at how he unpacks this, starting in verse 31. We'll read through verse 34 today. 
He continues, he says, What then shall we say in response to these things? If God is for us, who can be against us? If he did not spare his own son, but gave him up for us all, how will he not also along with him graciously give us all things? Who will bring any charge against those whom God has chosen? It is God who justifies. Who then is the one who condemns? No one. Christ Jesus, who died more than that, who was raised to life, is at the right hand of God and is also interceding for us. Now what you'll see in this section in the conclusion of Romans chapter 8 is that Paul has now initiated a series of questions almost one after the other. Right? What shall we say? Um, who can be against us? Uh, who, who can bring charges against us? Who condemns us? He's asking question after, after question. Now the, the final question we'll look at next week. Who can separate us from the love of Christ? And that will be what we look at next week. But these first series of questions, essentially what he is doing is he's going to present these questions with with almost quick, immediate answers or answers that are implied within the question themselves. And, And as he begins to do this, he is revealing what he sees to be an unassailable position, right? What he's trying to argue for at this point after everything that we've walked through is that nothing overcomes this. This is an unassailable position that you've been given in Christ. He, he can not be defeated. And, and he's looking at this not just from the lens of, of, again, just the Spirit of God in chapter 8, but he's stepping back and he's looking at the whole cosmic plan that we talked about just a, uh, not too long ago, right? That, that this was what God has been wanting to do from the very beginning. It was all leading to this. Jesus is not plan B. He was plan A. God is, is creator of all and nothing will stop his plan. He is, he is demonstrating extreme confidence in this unassailable position that has been achieved in Christ Jesus. Okay, And he does it through a series of questions. And, and the question we're going to seek to answer and we will get to an answer is what are we supposed to say in response to all that Christ has done? Well, we'll look at how he really begins. He says, if God is for us, who can be against us? That's the first question that we'll really look at today. And, and that's a well-known verse. And I think it's one that, again, sometimes we just take almost instinctively and we don't ever really maybe stop and think about it. Because you look at it and you're like, yeah, that's, that sounds great. Who, who could be against us? Remember, we got God on our side. And then we go out and we live life. Right? And when you live life, it doesn't take long to feel in different seasons, moments, and circumstances, that a lot can be against you. People, things, circumstances. What's, what's against you in your life right now? Where are you feeling opposition? Where are you feeling that, that stress, that burden, that conflict, that, that angst? I think a lot of us, when we really stop and think about it, we say, well, it feels like a lot is actually against me. Sometimes we actually have enemies. We may know them by name, we may not. But we have to recognize that whether it's true for us or others throughout the world, there are people who are constantly faced with enemies who viciously and violently oppose them. Sometimes that opposition is not so blatant and not so obvious. Sometimes the opposition that we feel, the things that are against us, are actually the folks that we can find in our own home, even in our own families. Right, some of our closest relationships. Unfortunately for many people, home that is designed to be a place where you find love and comfort is instead a place where you find heartache and pain. And that force just seems to be working against you. Sometimes it feels like the world itself is against us. 
right? It feels like things have just been structured in such a way that it's a constant uphill battle, right? And there are all these forces, whether they be institutional or cultural or, or whatever it may be, where it's just like, man, and there is no way we can get any sort of progress. We're just working against the world. Sometimes it's the lies and deception that misleads us. Culture's really good at that, right? Whispering things into our ears, saying, oh, this is gonna be where you find fulfillment. This is where you're gonna find purpose. This is where you're gonna find something that you really desire and meets everything you want within. And so we'll give ourselves to money. We'll give ourselves to fame. We'll give ourselves to all these different gratifying desires only to discover that they actually leave us empty. They, they take more than they give. We've been led astray. We're, we're up against the lies and the deception. Like the, the list is long. We're, we're up against uh, depression, loneliness, resentment, anger, rage. We could go on and on and on. What's against you right now? What sort of opposition do you feel? Right? It, whatever it might be for you, however you would maybe answer the question, this is a beautiful time to be reminded God is for you. He's for you, church. Can I get an amen? He's for you. And that's, that's the message of Advent. When we look upon the manger and we see the Christ child, that is a declaration. God is for you. Now, I realize that when you hear that, many of you can say, that sounds nice. That's easy to read but incredibly hard to believe because I'm under such attack. I'm under such opposition, such conflict. So what do we do when it's hard to see that God is for us? When it's hard to believe that? And when I think, again, Advent proves to be a good lesson for us, right? What Advent, I think, teaches us is that a lot of times it's hard to see God. It's hard to find God. Because the truth is, is while that story is well known for us today, it wasn't in the moment, right? Like, like Bethlehem was unexpected. A manger, a baby was unexpected. Shepherds were unexpected. None of it made sense. And sometimes we have to look in the unexpected to find God. But when we find him, we find Emmanuel. We see that God is with us. He is for you, church. He is for us. What an incredible truth for us to remember. And that's part of where Paul is coming from. God is for us. Now, how do we know that? How do we know that to be true? Once we find him, part of what Paul continues to say is that the reason you can know this is because he didn't, give, he didn't spare his own son. He who did not spare his own son but gave him up for us all, right? The level of commitment that God demonstrates as creator to his creation is that he will not spare his own son, right? He gives him up. He, he offers him up. Jesus came for a reason. He came to die. He came to give his life as a ransom for many. And if he didn't spare his own son, if he gives him up for us all, how much more so will he graciously give us all things? Right? So, so recognize the level of generosity and the extent of that generosity that comes from the Father. He gives him up for us all. A lot of times Christianity gets mislabeled as being a very exclusive 
belief system. And I've never really understood that. It's, it's arguably the most inclusive belief system because it is truly offered to everyone. Now, not everyone will receive it. Not everyone will accept it. But it is offered to everyone. He gave himself up, not for a few, not for some, but for all. And so God graciously gives. What we see in this verse is that our God is a God that doesn't withhold. He doesn't hold back. He's not greedy. He's not so. He graciously gives all things. And I truly believe that that brings the Father joy. Right? It, we see in Scripture, God loves a cheerful giver. I think that's true not just of us, but of God himself. He loves, he's joyfully giving all things. Now, where I think this verse uh, needs a little bit more exploration is our understanding of the phrase all things. Right? So what does it mean for God to give us or graciously give us all things? I, I, now, clearly, I don't know about you, there's been a lot of stuff I've prayed for that I didn't get. Right? And so it's hard for me to read that and be like, well, I didn't get everything. Like, I've asked for a lot and have heard no over and over and over again. So what are we, what are we talking about here? Now, some may argue, and I think there's some truth to this, that part of what Paul is saying is really all things related to salvation, right? Like, he's given us all that we need to experience new heaven, new earth, redemption, restoration, all those different things. And I think that's a component to it, but I think it's more than that. Right? In, in order for us to really understand, I think, what Paul is trying to say in terms of what God has graciously given us and, and how that applies to all things, I actually want to borrow from another portion of Scripture. Uh, if you have your Bibles and you want to follow along, you can. We'll have it up on the screen. But we're going we're gonna to complement Romans 8 today with 2 Peter chapter 1. Okay? And we're just going to kind of work through this little by little to try to complement this passage. Okay? And, and this, I think, gives us a greater picture and a greater understanding of the all things that God has given us. Let's pick up in verse 3, 2 Peter 1, verse 3. His divine power has given us everything we need for a godly life. There it is. Right? So it's not just he's given us everything for the life that is to come. He's given us everything we need for the life that is. To live a godly life. He's given us all things to live a godly life through our knowledge of him who has called us by his own glory and goodness. Through these, he has given us very great and precious promises so that through them you may participate in the divine nature, having escaped the corruption in the world caused by evil desires. Let me stop there. So part of what he's done is he's given us everything we need to live a godly life. And in that, we can see that what he has given us has been built upon these great and precious promises. Obviously, Jesus. Obviously, the promise of grace and mercy and forgiveness and, and repentance and justification, sanctification. All the things that we've already talked about throughout the course of the book of Romans. Right? He's given us these things built upon these promises. And what does it allow you to do? It allows you to escape the corruption of the world. Now, here's where I want us to make sense with that and complement this with Romans 8. Is that, listen... You're going to have people coming against you, right? Like, if God is for you, who can be against you was the statement. And so we're going to have life where it feels like folks are against us, right? But what Paul is trying to say is that essentially no matter who comes against you, whatever comes against you is of a lesser power than Jesus, right? So it's not that you're not going to have attacks. It's not that you're going to not have you know, some level of opposition, you're going to, but you can take heart in knowing that whatever comes against you is of a lesser power than that of Jesus. And so the attacks that come don't have to corrupt you. That's the key. 
We may face opposition, we may face difficulty, we may face hardship, but it doesn't have to corrupt us. It doesn't have to lead us towards bitterness, it doesn't have to lead us towards rage, it doesn't have to lead us to all the different corrupted mindsets that we find in the sinful flesh. Though we may be attacked, we have a greater power that allows us to withstand those attacks and escape the corruption that comes from evil desires. Notice that reference to evil desires. It changes your hearts. Right? The divine nature, the divine power, what God gives you is the opportunity for heart change. To change what you want, to change what you desire, right? And all those things allow you to withstand the attacks that come your way, but not be corrupted by them, right? The attacks don't define you, Jesus does. He's given you everything you need to withstand whatever it is that you're facing in a way that won't corrupt you. Let's continue. For this very reason, make every effort to add to your faith goodness and to goodness knowledge, to knowledge self-control, self-control perseverance, perseverance godliness, godliness mutual affection, and a mutual affection love. For if you possess these qualities in increasing measure, they will keep you from being ineffective and unproductive in your knowledge of our Lord Jesus Christ. But whoever does not have them is nearsighted and blind, forgetting that they have been cleansed from their past sins. So here's the next part. Right? He's given you this opportunity to escape the corruption of the world, but it's going to require effort. And, and I think that's a good word for us again today. Uh, because in all honesty, that's something that I think sometimes we, we fail to do, right? Is, is to recognize that following Jesus takes effort. Any relationship takes work. And so what sort of effort are you putting into your relationship with Christ? What sort of effort are you offering as a response to what he has given you? Now, what he says is that the effort that you're supposed to, to demonstrate in your life is to add to your faith, right? It's not enough just to believe. It's not enough just to trust. You need to add to your faith. What do you add? You add goodness. Right? We need to strive to demonstrate goodness in this world, not hate, not animosity, not hostility, but goodness. And what do we add to goodness? To goodness, we are to add knowledge, to love God with our minds, to love God by seeking him and searching for truth and to demonstrate that knowledge. And what do we add to knowledge? Well, to knowledge, we gotta add self-control, right? We, we have to do the hard work, make every effort to resist those temptations, to resist those desires and to store up for ourselves self-control. What else do we add? We add to self-control, we add perseverance, to endure, to withstand, Perseverance comes godliness, to live a godly life, as he said earlier, mutual affection, a compassion, a respect for others that ultimately leads to love. We have to make every effort to bring those things into our lives. That's what we should be demonstrating. Now, here's what I really love about this paragraph, is that that effort is to add those things into our lives with increasing measure, right? So, so essentially what that means is that you never graduate, you never arrive, right? You never get to a place where you say, all right, God, good. I got enough self-control. What's next? All right, God, I'm good on the love thing. I've, I've loved as perfectly as I could ever love. What's next? Like you don't ever arrive. As long as you have breath, we seek and make effort to add these things with increasing measure. Let me love a little more deeply. Let me have a little bit more goodness, more mutual affection, more perseverance. We never stop, right? And if we do that, then it will keep us from being ineffective and unproductive. Or another way that it's described here, nearsighted and blind. Now, to me, when I read 
uh, that description, that in some ways just hits me as an indictment against the American church. And honestly, what we often are up against, right? Because it feels as though more often than not, we struggle collectively in American Christianity that despite our knowledge of Jesus, we are very ineffective and unproductive, right? We're nearsighted and blind, right? Whether that's because we haven't really understood what he has done for us or we've, we've, we haven't made the effort, whatever it is, we, we a lot of times fall short because we lose focus. And essentially what Paul says, I think, that calls us back to this, and this is what I want to emphasize, is that we are near sight of line because we've forgotten that we've been cleansed from past sins, right? So, so here's, here's the accentuating point for me, right? I think one of the reasons we fail to make this effort, one of the reasons we fail in, in living into this godly life and understanding all that has been given to us and we have this nearsighted and blind mindset is because we honestly live as if sin is more powerful than Jesus, right? Like we live like sin is the king of our life rather than Christ. And so what happens is that that keeps us ineffective and unproductive, And we lose sight of the power and the unassailable position of what has been accomplished in Jesus. So quit living in shame. Quit quit living like that sin, that temptation is greater than Christ. Quit living in apathy. Quit living in complacency. Let us understand all that Jesus has accomplished for us. Make every effort to confirm your calling. That's how Paul continues. Make every effort to understand he's called you out of the realm of the flesh and into the realm of the spirit. Make every effort to confirm your election, knowing that salvation is yours in Christ. And what happens? Then you will receive a rich welcome into the kingdom of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. That's how he finishes there in in 2 Peter. Now, I have no idea what that rich welcome into the kingdom looks like, but it sounds incredible. Right, doesn't it? I mean, whatever that is, but for us to recognize what has happened, what has been accomplished for us, and to see that Jesus is greater. He has the greater power. He is unassailable, and to live accordingly, that that leads to such a rich welcome into his kingdom. He's given us everything we need to do all things. He is a gracious giver. He will graciously give us all things. Now, Paul adds to that question, right? He builds on this argument going back to Romans 8 now. He says, so who will bring any charge against those whom God has chosen? Right? Here's, here's essentially what he's saying, is that God is really the only one in the position to bring a charge against anyone. He's the creator. He's the one that gets to condemn or justify. No one else, nothing else in this world has the power, has the authority to bring a charge against you. Those lies that you're not good enough, those deceptions that you're not strong enough, those, those, those whispers that say you're not worth it, you're not valuable, all those different charges that come against you, no one has that right. Only God has that right. And what has he said? He has said there is no one who is condemned in Christ Jesus. No one brings a charge against you. He has justified you in Christ. He has made things right. And so if God hasn't brought a charge against you, then no one can. 
He is the only one with that authority, and he hasn't done it. There is no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. And that is the next question. Who then condemns? No one, he says. God has not condemned you. He's given you grace. He's given you freedom. Now, what happens there in verse 34 is a very quick, very compact, very succinct presentation of the gospel. Right? Essentially, he, he walks through all these different elements that, that we can't lose sight of this morning. Right? When he talks about who is it that condemns no one, it takes you back, obviously, to the beginning of Romans chapter 8 and, and that declaration that there is no one who's been condemned in Christ Jesus uh, for those who love him, right? We, we see that verdict that he has set us free, he has justified us, all those different things that Paul has tried to consistently make known. And then here in verse 34, he explains how all of it's possible. And just a very quick boom, 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 right? What's the first thing he says? For Christ has died. I think we need to, to always find a moment or several moments throughout the Advent season to never lose sight of that. Jesus came to die. I mean, that's, that's really what Advent is about. That's, that's the benefit of us living on this side of the cross is really knowing what his birth meant. Right, that he didn't arrive just to be laid in a manger. He came to be placed on a cross. He wasn't just given life. He was given life so he could lay it down. And so in his death, we find the sacrifice that absorbs the wrath of God, that assumes the penalty for sin. All the broken places, all the broken pieces, all the failures, all the mistakes, all the things that remind us of this broken and sinful world were absorbed fully on the cross. And in his sacrifice, in his death, we find mercy. That's why you're not condemned. Not because you're a good person. Not just because you, you've done a lot of good things in your life and you've somehow earned his favor. What he sees is the blood of Jesus. A sacrifice that was willing to take all of it away. It takes away all of our sin and brings in all of his righteousness. It is only possible because Jesus came to die. But it wasn't just that Jesus died. What does Paul say next? He died, but then he was raised to life. I mean, this is so critical. And I know it's, it's one of those things that we know and we say, but again, sometimes it just fades into the background that it is worth repeating it is worth us really reflecting upon. It's worth us really understanding and knowing, right? That, that the penalty of sin is death. And so the ultimate uh, declaration of sin's power is death and that every human heart and soul has to encounter and face death. And so if Jesus was truly going to demonstrate authority and victory and sovereignty and power over death, he had to be raised to life. And he was. And so when we see an empty tomb, when we see the stone rolled away, what we are able to begin to process and understand is that sin and death has been defeated in totality. Right? That Jesus gives us victory 
over the greatest power that sin ever had to wield against us. Jesus has a greater power. And we know that because he was raised to life. We have to understand the essence of the gospel is Christ crucified and resurrected. Right? Like, it, it can't only contain one or the other. It's both. And what we see in 1 Corinthians when Paul begins to explain this in much greater detail is that if you don't believe the dead are raised, then neither is Christ. And if Christ isn't raised, you're still in your sins. And your faith is futile. That's what he says. If, if Jesus isn't raised, we are to be pitied more than all people. Like there, there's not a more pathetic group on the planet is essentially what he's saying if this isn't true. So make no mistake, church, the gospel is very simple. Christ died and resurrected. Do you believe it? Do you believe he was raised from the dead? And he has victory over death that there is no greater power, no greater authority, no greater declaration of all that God wanted to do through Jesus, but then an empty tomb that Jesus was raised to life and in so doing was given the authority to extend that same life to all those who follow him. Jesus died and resurrected. Now listen, when you really stop and thinking about, do I really believe the dead are gonna be raised? And you really wrestle with that for a moment. I recognize, man, that, that's hard to get our minds wrapped around. Here's, here's one thing that I don't think we can refute. Regardless of whether or not we fully understand it, believe it, there is no question the early church did. That was their message. It, it was not a message of morality. It was not just a message of a good teacher. They believed fully to the point that they were willing to be beaten, flogged, imprisoned, and killed for it. The message that went from village to village, town to town, was Jesus Christ crucified and resurrected. And not only was he raised to new life, he now sits at the right hand of the throne of God. Right? It's not just Jesus crucified and resurrected, but Jesus ascended. Right? The reference to, to Jesus being at the right hand of God is a reference essentially, again, to his power and his authority. That is a privileged position. And so when we see so many different parts of the New Testament, so many different letters and epistles that were written by Paul that begin to accentuate that there is no other name. He has been given the name that is above all names, greater than any kingdom, power, authority, dominion in this age or in the age to come. It's because Jesus sits at the right hand of God. He is not laying aside in some, some tomb, some ancient tomb. He now sits at the right hand of God with the most privileged seat, the greatest power, the greatest authority. He is undefeatable, unassailable because of where he has been placed next to God. And we need to recognize that authority. And what is he doing there, church? He's interceding for you and for me. He intercedes for us. Take that in. Like the Savior of the world, the Son of God, the one who was crucified, resurrected, and ascended to the right hand of God, sees you. Sees you in those moments 
where it feels like everything's against you. Where it feels like the world is just closing in and you're wondering, is God really for me? Is he with me? And what is Jesus doing in those moments? He's pleading on your behalf. That's who he is. That's what's been done. What in the world should we say in response? What do we say in response to all these things? What have you said? Not just in word. Not just on Sunday morning when the preacher asks you. With your life with your Monday, your Tuesday, your Wednesday, when the attacks are all around you, when you're living in seasons of good fortune and blessing and it feels like peace is all around, what have you said with your life in response to all these things? Well, I wanna give you an answer for us to, to consider this morning of what we should say. Here's how I wanna do it. I wanna try to give us a, a mental picture uh, that I think captures the spirit of what we've talked about here with these few verses in Romans 8. And I'll conclude with this, this image, this picture. So uh, a couple days ago, um, I'm sitting down with my youngest son, David Wu, and we're, we're playing with those magnetiles. You guys ever seen those? Right? Little, little shapes. All the parents are like, yeah, we've seen them. We got them. Uh, but they're, they're magnets that are in the shapes of like squares, rectangles, things like that. So you can put them together and build all these different things. So naturally, we're playing, and what do you, what do you build when you're five? You build towers. And so we built this, this big tower and, and made it kind of construct into a point. And, and it was pretty cool. You know, you kind of step back. He steps back, and he marvels at it. And he's like, whoa, you know. And then what do you want to do when you're a five-year-old boy and you build a tower? What do you want to do? Knock it down, man. You just want to destroy that thing. You're just, boom, and, and we did. And it was so easy to destroy because it was magnets, right? And, and I was watching that and thinking about that in light of this passage, and, and a couple of things struck me. One was just kind of the, the innate awe that I think sometimes we have towards castles, towers, right? You know what I mean? Like, like we have this sense of wonder with, with those towers and those big constructions that we build from time to time. And, and it makes me wonder why, because I wouldn't necessarily say that America is the land of castles, right? It's not like we're just walking around overwhelmed by these incredible depictions of castles. I, I guess we can owe that sense of awe and wonder to Disney, right? Because every time we've watched a Disney movie, we get to see the little castle come to life there. I'm not entirely sure. But when you take some time to look and see the different castles that exist around the world, they are awe-inspiring. And, and so I brought a few pictures this morning to try to create that sense of awe and wonder just with what it looks like when you build this beautiful castle. And so I, I've got some pictures. I'm going to try to pronounce these as best I can. Apparently Europe is the land of castles. Obviously there's a lot in the East and Asia as well, but these are primarily focused in Europe. And so let me show you the first one. This is Neuschwanstein. It's my best German approach there. Uh, it's in Germany. And, I mean, isn't that just breathtaking and beautiful? Right? I mean, just a, a really beautiful castle. Another one in Denmark, the next one. This is uh, Fredericksburg. 
that you see in Denmark. You see the beautiful garden and the landscape there. Uh, again, just a place that I would love to visit. Uh, the next one is Chateau de Chunan Sao, I think is how you say it. Chunan So uh, in France. Chunan So. And uh, I love the reflection there over the water. And, and they're just beautiful. The, the, the next one that I have is from Italy, and it's in Guaita Tower in San Marino. Also beautiful. I love the, the landscape there. You look at these, these first four towers. The, the fourth one there is a little bit uh, kind of a hybrid of, of the point I'm trying to make. Those first three in particular, though, as beautiful as they are, like they'd be pretty easy to destroy, don't you think? Like, I mean, if we were really in some form of military conquest and that's where the king was staying, like, they're, they're, pretty, they're pretty wide open. And if there was going to be attack, there's a lot that could be done to overcome those particular castles, which is why throughout human history, a lot of castles were not just built with beauty in mind, right, and grandeur in mind, but with defense. And so this, this fourth one is a little bit of a transition to that, but there's this next one is a good example of a castle that's built with defense in mind. This is Bayobet Castle in Turkey. Right now, you look at that one in comparison to the first, and you're thinking, how are we going to get to that one? Right? If you're the opposing army, you're like, how do I get there? Now, if you're living there, it's probably a pretty long walk to the grocery store, but you're well protected, correct? Uh, the next one, uh, I love this one. This is Pajama Castle in Slovenia. It's actually built into a cliff. It's been apparently the inspiration of several castles that have been depicted in different movies and shows and things like that. There's some great legendary stories uh, with a knight. Uh, I, think, I can't remember the knight's name, but uh, that was able to withstand a siege for so long because of the, the protection of this castle as it's built inside a cave practically. But the one I really want to talk about this morning is uh, Liechtenstein Castle in Germany. Uh, isn't that beautiful? Beautiful picture. So Liechtenstein Castle there is actually 800 meters high on a cliff just on the edge of the, of the Swabian Alps in that part of Germany. So it's 800 meters high. Liechtenstein is a word that means shining stone. Okay? And, and this is the one that stood out to me. I want to tell you a little bit about the history of Liechtenstein. So, so I'll go with the recent history first before I go back to the ancient history, which is really kind of what drew me to it. Uh, but essentially, uh, after many, many years of this, this castle kind of deteriorating and no longer being a, in a good condition, it essentially came into possession of King Frederick of, of Wurttemberg. And in 1802, it was so deteriorated that he actually leveled the castle and built a hunting lodge. Right, built his own man cave, I guess you could say, right? So he had a hunting lodge there starting in 1802. Well, then romanticism comes along through Europe, and, and you kind of have this, this sweeping romantic view of the Middle Ages, and, and folks start looking back on it and wanting to recapture the spirit of that, and all these different kind of gothic and, and castle-like features come back. And so there was one book that was written about Liechtenstein in that area that was pretty inspiring. And so I believe the guy's name was Count Wilhelm von Urich, who then inhabits this land. And he's so motivated by the romantic period and romanticism that he wants to rebuild the Liechtenstein castle, which is what you have now today. It was constructed in 1842, uh, I believe, or, or at least inaugurated as a castle in 1842. And, and you can still go and, and walk through it today. Now, 
That's the recent history. Uh, prior to that, and part of like the romanticism and the stories of it that I thought was really interesting is that the Lords of Liechtenstein, uh, they actually, their first castle was probably uh, a little bit above this one. It was, it was further away. I think I read that it was like 500 meters away from this location. And the Lords of Liechtenstein apparently didn't get along well with their neighbors. And, and so there was a lot of conflict, constant attack from nearby towns and villages that would come. And in the old location, uh, whenever they were attacked, their castle was regularly destroyed. It was destroyed once in 1311. It was destroyed again in 1377. And so after a constant destruction, uh, the, the lords of Liechtenstein said, this, this location, this place isn't good. We need to move, right? We need to relocate. We need to refortify our castle. So they moved to the current location that you see there, and they constructed a new castle. And, and they, they constructed it in a way that had all these new uh, military technologies and advancements and all these different things. And once it was moved, it withstood every single attack. It was unassailable. And that, to me, is the image of the gospel. Right, like when we start out in this life, in sin, in the flesh, and brokenness, we're in this one realm where when the attacks come, they can consistently destroy us. But what Christ does is he moves us out of that realm and he repositions us, refortifies us, makes us a shining stone. And the attacks will come, they're gonna keep coming. But because of our position in Christ, it is unassailable. It is undefeatable because of what he has done. That's the image of the gospel. That's the message of Advent. Right, that I have removed you from the realm of the flesh. I have repositioned you and I have fortified you because of all that has been done in Christ. And now, though the attacks may come, you have been given all that you need to withstand them, to escape them, to not let them corrupt you, to add in increasing measure all the things that you need. So that you can have this confidence, you can have this assurance that you can be this shining stone. That's what I've done. Now the key to understanding that is to recognize who built the castle, who was the architect, who's the true king. We must live in a way that doesn't suggest that we're the king, but that he is. And that is the answer to our question. What shall we say in response to all these things? When we look upon this manger and we think of all that he has done, we should declare with our lives, he is wonderful counselor, mighty God, everlasting father, prince of peace. What child is this? What should we say in response to all these things? Let us say with word, in deed, in spirit, in truth, with all of our lives, church, that Christ is our King.
Let's pray. Father, we love you. And we are so grateful for the way that you reposition us with your grace, your mercy, your power, your authority, your spirit. And you put us in a place that is truly unassailable. God, we recognize that we will have attacks in this life. We will have challenges. We will have opposition. But we celebrate that you are a gracious giver and you've given us all that we need. So give us the strength, God. Give us the resolve. Give us the resiliency to make every effort to live as shining stones, to escape the corruption of this world, to change evil desires. God, to make every effort to add love to our life, to make every effort to confirm what you've done for us in Christ to make every effort to do these things with increasing measure. As long as you give us breath, may we give you our lives. Help us to declare to one another. Help us to remind one another during this Advent season and throughout the course of every day that may come our way that Christ is our King. We love you, Father. We pray all these things in Jesus' precious and holy name. Amen and amen.